Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. I'm Jennifer Justice. Today, we have Marion Leitner. She is the chief feather ruffler at Archer Ruth. Okay, so... I don't know anybody I've ever met with that title before. We're going to hear all about what that means, but I have a feeling that most of my listeners are a bit of feather rufflers as well. So I think this is going to be fun. (laughs) I think most women have that tendency inherently in them, Jennifer, and uh, it's part of what makes life fun. Yeah. The funny thing is is we don't even know we're ruffling feathers. We're just like being us, you know, but then we're told this. So I like it. You just took it and you ran with it and you're going to like, I'm going to be that person. Yeah, I love it. Um, the kind of like nasty woman, remember that? One hundred percent. Still on pin. that t-shirt. Yeah, I have my pin right here. My nasty. Yeah. Pin. <laughs> anyway, thank you for being on today. I'm excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on here, and uh, I love that I get to connect to this group of women today. Love it. So let's first start by talking about Archer Roos and what is it? And uh, what do you do there? How do you ruffle the feathers? How do we ruffle the feathers? Well, we're shaking things up in the wine industry over here. So we are building a transparent, sustainable, high quality wine brand that produces wine all around the world and brings it to consumers in kegs and cans. And we do this because most uh, of a wine that's actually produced, excuse me, consumed nationally is less than two years old and it is consumed 72 hours after purchase, uh, which means that we're not bottle aging wine. And yet 60% of the industry's carbon footprint actually comes from packaging and supply chain. So we're one, trying to help us all drink our way to a cleaner planet. And two, in the process, solve a really kind of, to me, basic need Uh, which is, I just want to have a damn good glass of wine at the end of the day without having to open up a bottle and feeling that pressure to finish it. Uh, (laughs) So that's really what it's all about. Who are your friends that pressure you to finish it? I love it. Who said it was my friends that did the pressuring? (laughs) (laughs) And so do you have a background in wine? Is this how you got started? Well, uh, that's a great question. I had a background as a drinker, for sure. I was kind of a serial entrepreneur. I loved kind of the operation side of things, and I loved building brands and storytelling. Uh, I married somebody who my husband, he actually 
got really involved in the natural winemaking movement kind of early on and then realized he was way in over his head. And so uh, got out of that uh, pretty quickly, but learned a lot about the wine industry in the process. And as we were sort of talking about why some of these challenges exist, those challenges being why uh, is the wine aisle so fragmented? Why does it feel so, why do wine brands today feel so disconnected from who the majority of drinkers are? And also like, why is there so much crap in wine? Like people don't realize that that there are 94 different additives that don't have to be included on the label. They include things like added uh, sugar, uh, food coloring, and, you know, animal processing agents. And so to me, there was like a real obvious need that all kind of all came down to this idea of like, it was a Monday night. I was around my dining room table and I just wanted to have a glass of wine because I had an early morning flight the next day. I didn't want to have to open up the bottle and there was no options to do that. And so mm-hmm. everything else just kind of felt wasteful. And I just wanted to know why this couldn't be better. And that really was the start of my journey. And what year is this? Oh, God. 2012, 2013. Right. And were you working at that time somewhere else? You were like, yeah. I yeah, I was that. actually working for the World Bank. Uh, we were living in Washington, D.C. I was literally in a different country every week. And uh, trying to, you know, basically help spread education to girls and living in rural developing areas around the world. But I was, my mom had just gotten sick and I was kind of asking myself kind of what life was all about. And I had this crazy idea and I started tumbling down this rabbit hole. So I'd work 10 hours a day and then come, I didn't have kids at that point. And so I'd come home and work off the side of my desk. And, um, the next thing I knew we kind of had this business plan and I had been planning to go get my MBA. And instead I decided I wanted to do this instead. And so took the money that we'd been saving for me to get my degree and we put into the business. And Archer Roos was born. And you have to do a little side note. Where does that name come from? (laughs) Yeah. So Archer Roos is actually the name of this woman who was really a feather ruffler and uh, a explorer, uh, somebody who really lived life on her own terms. And she traveled the world. And so we wanted to really bring her story to life. So we like to say that, uh, you know, we wanted to create this brand that was unified by a set of values and a profile of the product itself. So fruit forward, dry wine that had a clean label, um, totally transparent supply chain was, was high quality, but had wines from around the world that you could explore. And so we kind of took this fun story, overlaid it with our desire to build this global portfolio and, uh, made it so that kind of each one of these cans were like postcards of places where she'd been. So if you look in the back of our can, we talk about the people, places, and practices behind our wines, which frankly is just terroir, more simplified. Uh, But who knows what the word terroir means in the wine industry. And that's really kind of where the name came from. Uh, And so it's been a really fun, fun journey ever since. Interesting. I have never heard of her before, but now I'm going to find out more. (laughs) And, and of course, people- she's riding a moose because 
isn't that everyone's preferred mode of transportation? And I mean, that's how I get around New York City, but that's just exactly. And the kind of whole idea here is that like life, you know, wine like life should be a little whimsical. (laughs) Yeah, true. And so for people who don't can see or not looking at this out, Archer Roos is in cans only, right? Cans and kegs. Yes. And and oh my God, I love it's in a keg. Yep. Like, what is a keg made out of? Wood? Uh, that would be awesome. Yes, someday <laughs> it will be out of a cast. Uh, no, it's it's actually like a recycled polymer. So, like, it looks like a plastic, but it's enti- It's already it's made of recyclable material, and it's entirely recyclable itself. And it can get hooked up into any keg line. So, like, you know, you can get beer on tap, and you now you can get wine on tap. Got it. Could you have it in your home? You absolutely can. And, um, and so are each of these for the cans anyway, are they single serve or is it one glass? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's in, what's the can made out of that? You got, you did this all from a sustainability point of view. That's correct. So, um, so the can is made out of aluminum with a, uh, lining on the inside. That's a food grade liner specifically developed for wine so that you don't have any leaching into the wine itself. But the cool thing about aluminum is that uh, 70% of all aluminum that's in circulation has been in circulation since the 1950s. It's infinitely recyclable material. We have a ton of it here in in the U.S., thanks to Pepsi and Coke. Uh, And it's recycled in every municipality in the U.S. And what a lot of people don't realize is that in 60% of our municipalities, we don't actually recycle glass. It all just ends up in in the landfill. That's nice and depressing given it's about to be climate change week in the U.S. And uh, yeah. Well, this way, it's like with everything else. If we wait for the government or somebody to come save us, yeah, we'll waiting a long time. But we can drink our way to a cleaner planet on our own. <laughs> save our so yeah. So you guys are you're you're thinking about it from like not only sustainable, right, but also better for you. Correct. Wine. So talk about that. Talk about that whole process and, and what it is in the wine and how you make it. And you say it's global, right? So what does that mean? Yeah. Okay. So you're you're touching on two of my favorite topics now. Uh, <laughs> let me let me geek out a little bit. And let's start with let's draw an analogy between like what we're doing in craft beer. Um, so craft beer, everybody loves because you know, they love the fact that a craft beer is made in their town right? But what they don't realize is that it's actually made from ingredients that come from other places in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a story about the brewer. It's actually has, has nothing to say about where the beer is made. Wine's completely different. So the way that we approach winemaking is that we are telling stories about wine producers throughout the world. And then all of the ingredients for those wines are within a couple of miles of where those grapes are grown. So the yeast is wild yeast. Uh, the grapes are grown and they're produced at a winery within, you know, 20 miles of where the grapes are grown. And that's really important in order to make sure that we can really control this process end to end. So we have relationships with these winemakers all over the place. And we actually take need to take a slightly different perspective uh, approach to how we're producing this wine because it's going into a can rather than a bottle. Bottles tend to be really forgiving. The whole idea of like this cork is so that like, you know, you could 
have a wine and it could actually change chemically in your bottle over time. Mm-hmm. So little, you know, bits of oxygen slip into the the wine. You're not necessarily controlling for things like dissolved oxygen and, you know, sulfur. And these are all things that naturally occur in wine. And then you add to the fact that like, because of the way that most of the wines that we drink, particularly in the US are made, which is really with an eye towards consistency, but making it as cheap as possible. There's a lot of other additives. And for lack of a better word, I'm going to use, it's a highly scientific one, gunk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Perfect. that just gets put in to stabilize it. And so what we do is we get involved from the get-go. So even from how the grapes are being treated in the vineyard, we are really involved in what are the kind of organic interventions that are being made in the vineyard. So here's an example. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc grapes, which so many of us love, are highly susceptible to mold. You know, they're, so they're often spread with pesticides. We don't do that. But then a organic intervention could often be that there is some copper that's actually used in the winemaking process in order to mitigate the mold. But we don't do that because the copper can interfere with the canning process. And so we're really involved in the details of each one of these steps. We take as low intervention process as possible, because we really want to tell that story about how soil, water, the natural yeast, all of that comes together to create this wine. So you need a a really skilled winemaker in this process. And then we actually apply 10 years of scientific research to ensure that our wine is as of a true replacement pour for a bottle. So when you crack one open and you pour it into a glass, you couldn't tell the difference if it went, it came from a can or a keg, a can or a bottle. Mm-hmm. And the kind of last thing that I'll, I'll say on this topic is that, you know, we've really learned over time that like cans, particularly for the type of wine that most of us are drinking, which is young and fresh, Cans are actually a great method to preserve the freshness of the wine. And it just means that you get softer tannins and wines that's more fun and easy to drink as opposed to like a a wine that may be older, a little dustier, you know, that are have historically been marketed as like the highly desired wines, but in reality are out of line with what most of us are drinking. Right. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, you learned so much about wine in a very short period of time. <laughs> well, that why it helps to have always been a drinker. The, the agri- <laughs> yeah, but the agriculture part of it, like, you know, that's like crazy. It is. It is crazy. There's a lot of different grapes in, in wine, right? You know, it's not, uh, and they're grown in all different places and the soil has to do with it. And, you know, I know in Napa, it's like, if there's runoff from this, you know, hill and taste different that, you know, all that kind of Very stuff. True. So it's crazy. And how did you find these winemakers that were down with this? Right. It's like such an old business that's yeah. like all traditional families and they don't want, you know, these new kids on the block, you know? So it's interesting that you found people who are willing to partner with you on that. Well, I think the wine industry is being forced to change because of climate yeah. and, you know, 
the reality is that wine consumption in the U.S. is in decline compared to spirits and beer. And that's a byproduct of the wine industry, frankly, being out of touch with the end consumer and always marketing to the collector as opposed to the everyday consumer. Mm-hmm. So wine's really finding itself at a time of existential crisis. And what we have actually found is that, you know, when I started doing this 10 years ago, it was resistance in every corner, but now we are really seeing people clamoring for what we're doing. And, yeah. you know, wine producers really want to work with us, which is awesome. So obviously you started this company, but it takes capital, right? Yep. So how did you do that? Actually, you know what? I'm going to. Okay. So you have all these winemakers on board. You start this company or maybe not in that order, but you need money, capital to do this, right? Absolutely. How did you go about that process? What did you do first? Did you raise money? You used, I know you used your like MBA, like, but you, you know. Yeah. You so let's talk, let's talk in real numbers and, and let's be straight with one another, Jennifer, because I feel <laughs> okay. like there is a lot of things that I wish that people had been very straight with me about yeah. before I got into the beverage business. And that is that beverage is a very very capital intensive business. Yes. And it's not just on cost of inventory, but frankly, given the category is so crowded, it takes a lot of marketing in order to break through. And so I think it's very important for all founders considering this space to be very eyes wide open before you go into it, which is that you're going to need to raise 30 to $50 million in order to have a successful exit in this space. That's a shocking number. It's mm-hmm. shocking. Yeah. And I didn't believe it when I first heard it, but it really, I think has proven out again and again, that that is the type of capital that's required. So I took that my- wine or all spirits. Oh, I would say this is non-alk and alk. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So the reality, what I would ask, have everyone asked themselves first is what is your timeline um, to build this company before you hop into it? There are people who- are prepared to spend the next 20 to 30 years of their life building a company slowly at 10 to 15, 20% growth year over year, which is really admirable, but it's not going to get you acquired. You could at the end of that day, have a really big sizable business that will take care of your family, but it's going to be a lot of work over a long period of time. The big exits that you see in the alcohol business in particular, follow a model in which you get to proof of concept. And once you've proven that concept, you know, it takes a lot of money to scale. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the first thing. So you asked me to talk concretely about numbers. So I took hundred K that I had saved for my degree. And I put that towards brand development, product development, supply chain, and securing distribution. At this point, I didn't have a proven concept. All I had was a product. Right. And 100K was gone. The second piece then comes from, you know, what do you do once you get distribution and you're just trying to pilot this in one market? At which point I raised about $750,000 over a multi-year period because I frankly didn't have a huge angel network to draw upon. So it was a lot of like really painful rolling closes to kind of, Rob Peter to pay Paul and kind of pilot this out. 
So that was like the next two years. And once we really saw New York gain traction and I had an opportunity to scale across the East Coast, that was when I started to raise my first kind of serious round, uh, which was for $5 million. But at this point, the industry only sees that as like a seed round. That's not series A. Yeah. Right. They just wanted to see that like, okay, with a little bit of marketing, like we could see faster adoption than what I had proven out over the last couple of years. So uh, that was what I raised from institutionals. And once we started to kind of see those results, the pandemic hit. And by that point, I had built a company that was very exposed to the on-premise and I, sorry, the on-premise being bars and restaurants and Mm -hmm. the travel industry. Yeah. And so all of that was wiped out and we had to completely rebuild our company digitally um, in grocery channel, and then also figure out how to continue to thrive in uh, bars and restaurants. And that's because we're building an entirely new category. Um, The consumer, most consumers don't even know that canned wine exists. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for the most part, you're discovering canned wine because you're sitting on JetBlue and you're ordering one of our wines, or you're going to a concert, or you're at you know a really cool you know James Beard award winning restaurant and you order a glass of wine and it comes with yes the glass but our can next to it. Yeah. Um, and so we had to nurture all that through the pandemic, which slowed us down, but also provide an opportunity for us to really see the resilience of our business and that there really was a need there. And upon that, you know, time was when we also brought on our strategic partner, Elizabeth Banks. And uh, yeah. And, and for her, <laughs> it was Elizabeth a, Banks, the Elizabeth oh. Banks and make, you know, director of cocaine there in, uh, you know, many amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Many, many amazing movies. And she found us because she was drinking our Charousse while floating down a river in Utah and then started drinking us, you know, because she just wanted to have a glass of wine. She didn't want to open up a bottle and she got involved with our project. And that's when we really started to see everything click again, even though at this point we're still, you know, we're still, this is 21. um, So we're still just coming out of the pandemic, but we picked up speed again. And that's when we, we went out and, um, and raised our series A to really scale uh, the business. Amazing. And so what's her involvement in it? So she's a co-owner and chief creative officer. Uh, so one of the things that I've you know, talked a lot about is the product side. How do we make, you know, introduce consumers to the world of wine uh, more simply, but a huge part of our strategy is how do we use humor in order to make wine more accessible. Right. Wine is very serious. It takes itself very seriously. And we like to say that we take our wine seriously, but because we're in a can, we can't take ourselves seriously. And that's where Banks comes in and really, I think, turns the whole, really makes it come alive by taking so many pain points for consumers, whether it's taking your recycling out to the corner or, you know, wanting to sneak a can of wine at, on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game right. uh, and really brings those things to life. Amazing. Um, and then so when you did those deals, because a lot of people are doing those kinds of like celebrity driven deals, et cetera. Um, who's helping you on that 
to figure out what kind of deal would work, you know, because I think a lot of people are contemplating that female founders in particular, and bringing somebody on like, what were the considerations that you had? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's something that I'd say is really category specific. Yeah. So look like it's like everything else in this space. It's really easy to do a me too. But if you do a me too, you're just setting money on fire. You have to figure out what it is you're doing differently and what is the unique problem that you're trying to solve. Wait, what so, do you mean by, what's a me too? <laughs> I mean, like, uh, so here's a me too. George Clooney sells a tequila brand for a billion dollars. Yeah. Therefore, I should go out, get a celebrity to sign on, uh, a male celebrity to sign on and, uh, you know, sell my tequila brand for a billion dollars. Yeah, got it. That doesn't work. That billion dollar deal has already happened because that, you know, Diageo in this case has already solved that problem for themselves. Exactly. So what I urge everybody to do is take a step back and ask, what is my product? Who am I trying to serve? What is the unique value prop that I'm delivering? And then figure out how's the be- what's the best way to tell the story. And so for instance, like one of the things that's was pretty shocking was like until Eva Longoria, who is actually Mexican, launched her tequila brand, there was like no Mexican celebrities in tequila. Yeah. Like, so (laughs) there are definitely some white space out there, but find that white space, figure out what your product is and figure out who is the right spokesperson for it. Then once you've kind of identified that white space and, and, you know, ask yourself the next following set of questions. There is a graveyard full of celebrity partnerships. Most of them have failed. Mm-hmm. And I think they've failed because people think, oh, great. I have a celebrity. They've got a built-in fan base. Like, obviously, all their fans are going to drink my product. That's not the way it works because people can smell bullshit a mile away. So it really has to be an authentic connection, but yeah. also it's got to make business sense. So one of the kind of big pieces of analysis that I did was I asked myself, what made the George Clooney Casa Amigos deal so successful? What made the Ryan Reynolds Aviation Gin so successful? What made Bethany Frankel and Skinny Girl Margarita so successful? And I really broke it down to a few different components. Um, one was each one of them touched on a zeitgeist of their particular time. Uh, you know, Bethany Frankel had a lot of vision. Like people weren't drinking margaritas and tequila the same way to the same extent that we're doing today. She was really ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. So first you have to identify what's the wave or trend that you want to, that you're trying to ride. And again, make sure that that connection really fits authentically. The second piece is what is the right mode to tell your story? Is it D to C? If so, and then by that, I mean, direct to consumer, all e-commerce based, you got to find somebody with a strong digital presence. Honestly, George Clooney is not on Instagram. So like that wouldn't have worked if right. Casa just wanted to take that strategy. Right. Um, the second piece is, you know, you want to find somebody who is really well known within your target demo. So uh, again, like you wouldn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's a famous bodybuilder, like try to sell wine to, you know, a bunch of suburban moms. That's not somebody who you're looking towards. And then finally, it's how you're telling that story. Is it humor? Is it, you know, what are, what are some of these like things that you really want to bring to life? And so for us, 
it really boiled down to, I mean, Banks was honestly the only person who I wanted to partner with because she had an irreverent sense of humor that to me was core and intrinsic to the brand. She had a strong social following, but she also was never afraid to make fun of herself. She's very real. And also she is funny as hell. And I, that was a big thing that we wanted to bring to this category, which is so self-serious. And that's kind of how it all came together for us. Right. I love that. No, those are real considerations because people just think you can slap it on there and it's going to work. And it's like, they have to be talking about it. They have to be a true consumer themselves. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be in their core demo. You know, whoever their fan is, has got to actually want and care about these things as well. You know, and I grew up in the business representing Jay-Z for a very long time. And, you know, I did these deals from the very beginning. And so I still help female founders find partners. And that's one of the things it's like, it takes a really long time. So it's not always that an Elizabeth really calls you up and says, Hey, I want to be a part of this. Right? No. I mean, let's really talk here. Then there's the dollar and cents piece of this, yeah, Jennifer, exactly. which is like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to structure these deals, which is you can, if you have deep pockets, you can pay a lot of money for that partnership. We did not have deep pockets. In fact, Part of what we were asking for was an investment from her. And so there's lots of different ways that you can get creative on how you structure this, but you also then need to be realistic about the type of equity that you're going to have to give up in order to make room for somebody of that caliber in your deal. And what are they doing for it? When is uh, it yeah. sting? And what if they don't do it? Or what if it doesn't convert? You know, what do you do there? hundred percent. And like, that's why sunset clauses are like just as important to protect you, the founder, as it would be to protect the star or the talent. And I think I personally believe it needs to be broken up into three different uh, parts. So like one is the service agreement and make sure that you're really thorough and are very clear about what it is you want in that service agreement. Um, the second piece is performance. So however you're defining that performance and make sure it ties again to like that service agreement. Right. And the third piece. People listening performance, meaning like tying to a revenue goal. Well, it can be whatever. So a revenue goal is obviously that's a great metric, but I would say that in today's very brand conscious, like sorry, taking a very brand health approach, you would want a revenue, but also potentially like other KP, like uh, key performance metrics underneath it mm-hmm. that could also show like, what's the stickiness of your brand. So like, whether it be engagement on social media, whether it be, you know, how your media performs, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this yeah. Uh, in order to make it so that everybody recognizes as an as clear cut idea of what's successful and what's not. Right. So in the services agreement, you're talking about how many social media posts, what your title is, that kind of stuff. Yes. To, you know, in our case, production days, you know, product shots, appearances, like is the expectation that this person is going to meet with you with retailers? Are they going to show up and do bottle signings? Like all of that is things you need to think through ahead of time 
and know that for the person weighing these deals, yeah. there's an opportunity cost to every day of their time. Yeah. And the other piece that I think this doesn't get talked about enough, and I might get killed for bringing this up, but like, is the secret costs of doing business with talent. Yeah. Like you and I might just go and get our hair blown out at a, you know, local hairdresser or like, you know, put on our own makeup and that kind of thing. I've been really lucky like that Liz is the banks is like, so um, is very low key and easy to work with, but it's still everything around. It's still expensive because yeah, there she's successful and she's used to a certain style treatment. So her her fans are too. Right. And her publicity. Right. And all those people, you know, trying to take bad shots of people. So um, yeah, it's called glam hair and makeup. HMU costs a lot of money. Kids like usually around $5,000 at least for a shot. They know like photo shoot. So it's not cheap. Yes. Definitely. Yes, I know. I'm including traveling them around, right? You're not getting them a coach seat in JetBlue. Correct. Correct. I know that we do go to where they are to do the photo shoots and production. Exactly. And these are these are all the hidden costs. Yes, exactly. Why would you get killed for that? That's like something that no one ever talks about, actually. Totally. And I well, I don't know. I feel like there's this mystique that we're supposed to have around these celebrity partnerships. But I, I think it is really important as you're building your business case and you're working on your financial model and deciding what can I afford? Um, or, you know, depending on how much money, almost definitely the talent that you're bringing on is not going to write a check big enough that you're going to need to not only grow the business, but to then like do everything you need to service the business with their attachment. Right. So it's being realistic about, what else you need to budget in order for that to make happen. And, you know, it kind of goes from like, I used to do $15,000 photo shoots and think that was expensive. Yeah. And now it's like a hundred K to do photo shoots. Yeah. And that's because the photographer that you get is better. The quality of the production, the quality of the set, uh, you know, to your point, all of the glam costs, and I think that's something that we all need to be aware of. Yeah, no, it's such good input um, and very good way to like break everything down. That's awesome. Look, I know our time is running up, so I and I can't keep you all day. But um, if people want to buy Archer Roos, where do they get it? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you can order it off our website, www.archer, and that's like Archer bow and arrow, Archer Roos, R-O-O-S-E.com. And that can just show up right to your door. We deliver to 44 states across the U.S. Or we're we're available at Target, Sprouts, Total Wine, BevMo, depending on the state that you live in. And you can actually go to our website and click on find a store near me, uh, enter in your zip code, and we'll let you know where you can discover us, whether that be in a bar or restaurant or at your local store. What about near one zero 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 seven? Well, Where I wish I right that now. my mind worked like that, so I could <laughs> give you your the absolute latest. But 
Uh, yes, we can definitely work. I can definitely get you the deets on that. I love it. Oh, that is awesome. Okay. So before we let you go though, I always ask one question in the end and that is what is the worst advice you've ever received? Yeah. So the worst advice I've ever received was, uh, you have to give this your all. That means like, you know, this has to be the most important thing in your life. Everything else comes to the weight side. I cannot tell you what terrible advice that is. Right. Because none of us is motivated in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. We all have things in our life that motivate us. I have two young children and a partner who I adore. And not only do they fill me up so that I can keep going on my hardest days, but they're why I work so hard when some days I would have just given up. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that's really important as the other side of that coin is that you cannot have your self-worth be completely tied up in this business because you will inevitably have to make decisions that are really, really hard. And you will inevitably have to make decisions where everything is on the line. And you cannot do that with a clear head if your entire sense of worth is tied up in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So protect your life as much as you can while you build your company. Perspective is your best friend. Yeah. Wow. That's a good one. I don't think anybody else has ever said that. And you're like interview number 98. So, Hey, I love to try (laughs) to be original. Love it. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. This is so good. I just broke down so many main points and building a company like this. And I so appreciate it. And congrats on everything. Um, To everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice. 49 faces look to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon bestselling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.